you have been persevering to the last session, and as you know, perseverance is a sign of election. <laughs> In the opening pages of his seminal essay on the development of Christian doctrine, John Henry Newman states, to be deep in history is to cease to be a Protestant. Transposed from what presently will be regarded an ecumenically offensive, yet nevertheless true observation, into a positive statement, Newman's adage might best be put thus, to be a Catholic is to be deep in history. Lest we misunderstand Newman's statement, we must immediately realize that the history Newman refers to with his evocative expression to be deep in history is the spirit-guided and spirit-filled history of salvation that the church holds in her living memory. It is the church's living memory of the risen Christ, the bridegroom who guides his bride, the church, by means of the comforter he promised to send. It is the history of the truth of revelation, Christ himself, given in surpassing plenitude to the apostles. Church receives this fullness of revelation from the apostles as a gift that continues giving a complex and living reality that unfolds in the mind of the church. Newman calls it the idea of Christianity. According to Newman, Jesus Christ, during his earthly ministry, up to his passion and death on the cross, as well as after his resurrection, aroused in the apostles' consciousness of faith a comprehensive intuition of the fullness of revelation. In addition to innumerable explicit aspects, there are even more implicit aspects in this original impression or idea. In the last of his 50 Oxford University sermons, The Theory of Developments in Religious Doctrine from 1843, Newman insists on, quote, the reality and permanence of inward knowledge as distinct from explicit confession. The absence or partial absence or incompleteness of dogmatic statements is no proof of the absence of impressions or implicit judgments in the mind of the church." Unquote. It is this comprehensive idea of Christianity that the church receives from the apostles and that the church continues to pass on. The idea imprinted itself first inchoately, with many aspects remaining implicit and eventually with ever greater precision and explication on the mind of the church. In the already mentioned last of his Oxford University sermons, Newman observes that, quote, the great idea takes hold of a thousand minds by its living force, so that it may rather be said to use the minds of Christians than to be used by them, unquote. The idea of Christianity constitutes the living tradition that bears upon the church's present claiming and informing the mind of Christians. Insofar as this idea of Christianity is the object of the church's progressive growth and insight, it becomes a concrete body of defined teaching handed on in an explicit way. Yet at the same time, precisely because the animating principle of the idea of Christianity is God's living word in history, Christ, this body of teaching, is really one idea. As Newman explains in the essay on the development of Christian doctrine, quote, this body of thought, thus laboriously gained, will after all be little more than the proper representative of one idea, being in substance what that idea meant from the first, its complete image 
as seen in a combination of diversified aspects, with the suggestions and corrections of many minds and the illustrations of many experiences." Unquote. Against this developing body of the Church's doctrinal patrimony, the Church's ongoing reception of an ever-deeper unfolding of the idea in the Church's mind, two distinct opposing forces have arisen as early as the Protestant Reformation, and especially since the Enlightenment, with its epochal self-perception culminating in its radically new understanding of historicity. These forces took on a new and surprising intensity in the wake of the conflict-laden reception of the Second Vatican Council. These forces are distinct ways of forfeiting to be deep in history, the one by idealizing a particular state of the past, we shall call this in the following antiquarianism, the other by projecting an idealized state of the future, we shall call this in the following presentism. First, there is antiquarianism, which is a purism of origins. Antiquarianism variously locates the true and original gospel or doctrine of Christ behind the various portraits advanced by the four evangelists, or in St. Paul's original message without the later accretions of his disciples, or in the Church of the New Testament camp and the earliest pre-Nicene Church Fathers without all the later doctrinal additions and complications, or finally, in some authentic tradition that at some identifiable point in history was purportedly abandoned or corrupted. What exactly this idealized state of the past is depends on whether the antiquarianism is of a liberal Protestant, of evangelical biblicist, of Anglican, of Eastern Orthodox, or of traditionalist Catholic provenance. For antiquarianism, all developments beyond some allegedly pure origin or some purportedly undistorted, temporally limited expression of the origin are nothing but a fall from some original state, an increasing admixture of this pure origin with distortions and falsehood that more and more pollute the clear spring water the further it is carried away from its pristine source. Return to and union with the origin, or at least with the latest state of its authentic expression, is the ultimate goal of antiquarianism. And yes, the Via Media, the Anglican Newman constructed, as the ecclesiological program of tractarianism, arguably, was a sophisticated form of antiquarianism. Diametrically opposed to antiquarianism is presentism. Contrary to antiquarianism that privileges some idealized fixed state of the past as norm, presentism privileges a projected future as norm, in light of which the present must be shaped in order to conform increasingly with the norm of the projected future. Presentism holds the church to be a self-actuating and self-norming body empowered and guided by the spirit that comes from the future and draws into the future. Unsurprisingly, a prominent feature of this dynamic is rupture. Rupture is the spirit granted liberation from a past that once was the self-actuation of what is now the church of the past. Presentism welcomes, encourages, and indeed sets into motion the dynamic rupture-filled and spontaneous fluidity 
of ongoing transformative ecclesial self-actuation. The interminable process of shaking off the shackles of past ecclesial self-actuations and bringing about the self-actuation of the new church of the present. The notion that differentiates between the outgoing and the incoming church of the present is future. The very shape the future is supposed or desired to take based on the purportedly collective convictions of the future-oriented part of the outgoing church of the present becomes the blueprint for the self-actuation of the new incoming church of the present and the criterion by which the outgoing church of the present, now the church of the past, is purged, corrected and remodeled. For presentism, the necessity of the constant reform of the church, Ecclesia Semper Reformanda Est, does not arise from the fact that the visible church is a corpus per mixtum, a mixed body, and that its personnel, to use the philosopher Jacques Maritain's term, are fragile, sinful, and at times corrupt. On the contrary, for presentism, the principle Ecclesia Semper Reformanda Est simply articulates the transformative dynamic of the Church's ongoing self-actuation. Presentism stresses the eschatological nature of doctrine and also dogma. Dogma in its unrestricted plenitude is realized in the human mind only eschatologically in the beatific vision. This side of the eschaton, all doctrinal definitions are transient approximations to which apply four cognitive reservations. First, the eschatological reservation. Dogmatic definitions are penultimate. Second, the analogical reservation. They only approximate the truth. Third, the historicist reservation. Their conceptuality, linguistic rendition, and propositional intention are bound to and by the socio-historical and discursive context in which they were formulated and which they address. And fourth, what is seen as the pneumatological ecclesiological reservation. The she agent of the church is empowered to actuate herself anew over against past actuations. Hence, for presentism, dogmatic definitions are never unequivocally definitive and irreversible. They always remain subject to the church's new self-actuation. Hence, development cannot denote anything else but the dynamic rupture-filled and spontaneous fluidity of ongoing ecclesial self-actuation. So much on antiquarianism and presentism. Yet how are antiquarian ossifications and more importantly presentist fluidifications and transformations of doctrine discerned for what they are, corruptions of doctrine? How do we distinguish between authentic developments of doctrine and developments that are actually corruptions of doctrine? Not every development is necessarily authentic development. In order to address this question, we must first recall the teaching of the modern magisterium on the development of doctrine. With modern, I simply mean here uh, post tridentine We find the first important statement of the modern magisterium on the development of doctrine in Dei Filius, the First Vatican Council of Dogmatic Constitution on the Catholic Faith, quote, the doctrine of the faith which God has revealed is put forward not as some philosophical discovery capable of being perfected by human intelligence, but as a divine deposit committed to the spouse of Christ to be faithfully protected 
and infallibly promulgated. Hence, too, that meaning of the sacred dogmas is ever to be maintained, which has once been declared by Holy Mother Church, and there must never be any abandonment of this sense under the pretext or in the name of a more profound understanding. May understanding, knowledge, and wisdom increase as ages and centuries roll along and greatly and vigorously flourish in each and all, in the individual and in the whole church, but this only in its own proper kind, species, that is to say, in the same doctrine, the same sense, and the same understanding." Unquote. The Fathers of the First Vatican Council emphasized the ongoing identity of sense and meaning between a definitive and irreversible dogma and its ongoing interpretation that aims at an ever deeper understanding of the mystery the dogma specifies. Needless to say that such a process of growth in understanding knowledge and wisdom in the same sense and the same meaning is only conceivable on the supposition that a law of historicity that comprises truth and meaning does not exist. To put it differently, the rule of identity of sense and meaning that Deiphilius puts forward and the law of historicity issuing in the alleged historicity of truth itself and meaning are mutually exclusive. The Fathers of the Second Vatican Council shift the focus from the First Vatican Council's rule of the identity of sense and meaning to the pneumatologically funded theological historicity of salvation history and the Church. The law of this historicity is nothing but the eternal law of God's providence as it unfolds in the history of creation, redemption, and glorification. This theological history is, of course, fully compatible with the rule of the identity of sense and meaning that the First Vatican Council teaches in the Aphelius. We find a brief but concise formulation of this pneumatologically funded theological historicity in the dogmatic constitution of divine revelation Dei Verbum. The key term under which this historicity is unfolded is traditio, or paradosis. This tradition, traditio, which comes from the apostles, progresses in the church under the assistance of the Holy Spirit. There is growth in understanding of what is handed on, both in words and the realities they signify. This comes about through contemplation and study by believers who ponder these things in their hearts through the intimate understanding of spiritual things which they experience, and through the preaching of those who, on succeeding to the office of bishop, receive the sure charisma of truth. Thus, as the centuries advance, the Church constantly holds its course towards the fullness of God's truth until the day when the words of God reach their fulfillment in the Church." Unquote. While the Fathers of the First Vatican Council emphasized the ongoing identity of the meaning of doctrine with the original deposit, the Fathers of the Second Vatican Council emphasized the ongoing dynamic explication of doctrine until the very plenitude of divine truth given to the Apostles in the deposit of faith 
has been received into the Church's mind. Far from being contradictory, the two statements only differ in emphasis and scope. Vatican I, focusing on the identity of sense and meaning in the ongoing growth of understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. Vatican II, stressing the complex and manifold dynamics that are integral to this process involving, in various ways, three distinct but interrelated motors that stimulate this growth of understanding, knowledge, and wisdom. The complete compatibility between the teachings of Vatican I and Vatican II on the authentic development of doctrine becomes transparent when seen in light of the patristic author from the early 5th century who reflected deeply about the question of doctrinal coherence and development, Vincent of Lerain. From the time of the 16th century on, when the question of the authentic development of doctrine became increasingly virulent, his work became the most important patristic point of reference and ran through innumerable editions. In his canon or rule to overcome heresy, Vincent famously states that, quote, in the Catholic Church itself, all possible care must be taken that we hold that faith which has been believed everywhere, always, by all, ubique semper et ab omnibus. Unquote. This rule played a major role in Newman's Via Media, articulated most forcefully in his 1837 lectures on the prophetical office of the Church. Based on Vincent's canon or rule, Newman launched a withering attack on what he took to be Roman Catholic corruptions of doctrine and embraced a consistent antiquarianism that took the consensus quinque secularis, the consensus of the first five centuries, as the ideal state of doctrine that reflected authentically the purity of the origin. In his subsequent 1845 essay on the development of Christian doctrine, Newman expunged his previous antiquarianism in form of an implicit self-critique. Submitting Vincent's canon a rule to a reductio ad absurdum argumentation, Newman showed that in the way he, himself, used the canon, it offered no reliable criterion it rather only justified a position arrived at on other grounds. What became increasingly important for Newman from 1845 on was Vincent of Lerain's less well-known, but at least equally, if not actually more important, second rule from chapter 23 of his Communitorium. There, the Leninian states, quote, Shall there then be no progress in Christ's church? Certainly, all possible progress. For what being is there so envious of men, so full of hatred to God, who would seek to forbid it? Yet on condition that it be real progress, no alteration of the faith. For progress requires that the subject be enlarged in itself whereas alteration implies that it is transformed into something else. The understanding, then, the knowledge, the wisdom, as well of individuals, as of all, as well of one man, as of the whole church, ought, in the course of ages and centuries, to increase and make much and vigorous progress, but yet only in its own kind, that is to say, in the same doctrine, in the same sense, and in the same meaning. 
in eodem genere, in scilicere eodem dogmate, eodem sensu, eadem que sententia. It is Vincent's second rule that the fathers of the First Vatican Council draw upon in Dei Filius when they insist on the law of the identity of sense and meaning. Vincent's second rule makes obvious that neither he nor by implication the fathers of the First Vatican Council fall into the error of antiquarianism. Thomas Guarino, in his noteworthy book about the Larinian, rightly observes that according to Vincent, quote, antiquity itself must always be understood within the horizon of legitimate development, unquote. Differently put, Vincent of Laran already presupposes the kind of theologically funded historicity that is entailed in Newman's understanding of the development of doctrine. This historicity is simply an entailment of the realization that what is implicit in the idea of Christianity becomes explicit as time expands, as new historical situations need to be faced and heresies addressed, and as the deposit of faith is meditated by the church in an ever deeper and sustained way. Vincent's and Newman's account of historicity is categorically different from the law of historicity, characteristic of the historicism to which the Enlightenment gives rise and which presentism embraces. Vincent's and Newman's historicity is a theologically funded, non-historicist historicity of salvation history, a history informed by the surpassing trans-historical transcendence of God, the triune Lord of history, and sovereign agent of revelation and incarnation. And the human being, the recipient of the paradoxes of revelation, held by divine and Catholic faith, a recipient who qua rational being is able to apprehend and cognize truth that transcends the transiency of time, the vagaries of history, and the contingent particularities of language, culture, and custom. Historicist historicity is, on the contrary, all comprehensive. It comprises the very meaning of concepts like revelation, faith, church, and even truth, and subjects them to the supposition of epochal changes that call for radical hermeneutical transpositions from a bygone epoch into a new normative epoch. And since this epoch is the epoch of the full and consequent grasp of the radical historicity of human existence all the way down, one must assume and embrace a primordial plurality of subsequent and even concurrent heterogeneous conceptual frameworks. This is what drives presentism and the historicity of truth that it presupposes. From the perspective of presentism, the Larinian is naively pre-modern about matters of historicity, as one should expect, and Newman while allegedly an obvious precursor of historicism, still disturbingly unreflective about what historicists would regard to be the necessary entailments of Newman's own account, an account that would require an appropriate updating to become consistent with the full range of implications of a consistent historicism. Yet it has become plain in the course of the present considerations that such a presentist claim on Newman ignores the obvious fact that Newman would vehemently resist such a historicist updating of his understanding of the development of doctrine. 
As a matter of fact, Newman would regard such a historicist updating of his thought as nothing but the illegitimate introduction of historicist principles into theological considerations appropriately informed by revealed religion. Indeed, as an imposition of principles categorically foreign to the nature of revealed religion. An imposition that would amount to nothing less than a rationalist usurpation of revealed religion. We have reached the opposite point to address the question of how to distinguish between authentic developments of doctrine and developments that are actually corruptions of doctrine. How to discern antiquarian ossifications and presentist transformations. Newman offers a first important step toward a full answer in the way he specifies Vincent of Laras' second rule in the same doctrine, in the same sense, and in the same meaning by offering seven notes of authentic development, notes that have the fingerprints of Vincent's second rule all over them. These notes flesh out, unfold, in short, develop the second rule into a heuristic web of multiple indicators of authentic development. The first note is preservation of type, which Newman illustrates with the help of an analogy from biological life. Quote, this is readily suggested by the analogy of physical growth, which is such that the parts and proportions of the developed form, however altered, correspond to those which belong to its rudiments. The adult animal has the same make as it had on its birth. Young birds do not grow into fishes, nor does the child degenerate into the brute, while the domestic, of which he is by inheritance lord. Vincentius of Laran adopts this illustration in distinct reference to Christian doctrine, and here Newman quotes Vincent, let the soul's religion, he says, imitate the law of the body, which, as years go on, develops indeed and opens out its due proportions, and yet remains identically what it was. Small are a baby's limbs, the youths are larger, yet they are the same." Unquote. The second note is continuity of principles. It is an entailment of the first note. For in order to preserve its type, the church must be faithful to its foundational principles. Newman proposes nine such principles. The principle of dogma, the principle of faith, the principle of theology, the sacramental principle, the principle of spiritual sense of scripture, the principle of grace, the principle of asceticism, principle of the malignity of sin the principle that matter and mind are capable of sanctification. And in the footnote, he adds a tenth principle, that's this Catholic footnote, the principle of the development of doctrine. Abandon any of these principles and Christianity will be diminished and even distorted in one or the other respect. Accepting all of these principles and assuring their continuity is essential to the life and vigor of the Church. The third note is power of assimilation, which Newman explains pithily thus, development is a process of incorporation. Cardinal Dulles offers a helpful image to understand this note, quote, as a healthy organism builds itself up by ingesting food, so the church takes in what is assimilable in the cultures it meets and transforms what it appropriates, unquote. Also, this note is entailed in the first one, 
presupposing, as also the second note does, Vincent's guiding image of the organic growth of a body. The fourth note is logical sequence. Here Newman has in mind the fact that in retrospect, quote, the process of development is capable of a logical expression. A doctrine professed in its mature years by a philosophy or religion is likely to be a true development, not a corruption, in proportion as it seems to be the logical issue of its original teaching, unquote. The fourth note is an entailment of the second one, continuity of principles, and of the first principle listed there, the principle of dogma. The fifth note is anticipation of its own future. An ultimate development may be authentic when there is a, quote, definitive anticipation at an early period in the history of the idea to which it belongs, unquote. Also, this note is an entailment of the second note, especially of the sacramental principle, the principle of grace, the principle of the malignity of sin, and the principle of aestheticism. The sixth note is conservative action on its own past. Quote, a true development may be described as one which is conservative of the course of antecedent developments being really those antecedents and something besides them. It is an addition which illustrates, not obscures, corroborates, not corrects, the body of thought from which it proceeds. And this is its characteristic as contrasted with a corruption." Unquote. The sixth note is an indispensable specification of the first note. The preservation of type is secured precisely by the conservative action on its past. The seventh note is chronic vigor. By retaining its youthful vigor despite its antiquity, the church, with its development of doctrine, may be presumed to be authentic. By contrast, quote, a corruption, if vigorous, is of brief duration, runs itself out quickly and ends in death. On the other hand, if it lasts, it fails in vigor and passes into a decay, unquote. This last note is a corrective complement to the sixth note. Were conservative action upon the past all embracing and absolute, the result would be an antiquarian ossification of the church's doctrine a dead and cold traditionalism, ongoing reform, ongoing charismatic renewal, and ongoing development of doctrine are signs of the Church's spirit-guided life and hence chronic vigor. We might call the seventh note the anti-antiquarian note par excellence. It is against the danger of antiquarianism that Newman famously maintains, quote, it is indeed sometimes said that the stream is clearest near the spring, Whatever use may fairly be made of this image, it does not apply to the history of a philosophy of belief, which on the contrary is more equable and purer and stronger when its bed has become deep and broad and full. In a higher world it is otherwise, but here below to live is to change and to be perfect is to have changed often." Unquote. At the very end of the essay on the development of Christian doctrine, Newman makes a telling statement that shows that he is aware not only of the antiquarianism he overcame, but also of the presentism that emerges as soon as theologians embrace all too uncritically 
Enlightenment tenets that liberalism in theology Newman fought all his life and are bent on engineering the ruptures and transformations that the law of historicity allegedly, allegedly calls for. Newman states, quote, a true development is that which is conservative of its original, and a corruption is that which tends to its destruction, unquote. This is about as straightforward an appropriation of Vincent of Larin's second rule as one might wish. Authentic development is a function of the ongoing identity of meaning, of faithfulness to the principles given in the one single and self-same deposit of faith. It is for this very reason that Newman saw his notes as applicable to the, quote, actual decisions of authority, unquote, that is, to a promulgated teaching. The seven notes of authentic development are not at all meant to help project, predict, or even somehow encourage and bring about future developments. Against the danger of presentism, Newman insists that the development of doctrine is not the tool of ongoing change managed by developers of doctrine in view of a desired church of the future whose teaching is to be designed in advance by the self-authenticating church of the present. Such a presentist misconception of the development of doctrine could, according to Newman, lead only to doctrinal corruptions. I had stated earlier with his seven notes, Newman offered only the first step toward an answer to the question how an authentic development of doctrine might be distinguished from corruptions of doctrine. It is telling that in the 1845 edition, Newman calls these seven criteria tests, while in the reworked Catholic edition um, from uh, 1878, he calls them merely notes. Thomas Gorino states the matter well, quote, after developing two-thirds of his most famous book, an essay in the development of Christian doctrine, to his notes or tests for distinguishing true developments from a noxious corruption, Newman never returned to the notes for the rest of his life. Why not? Possibly, Newman recognized that he needed not just isolated notes, but also a stronger accent on ecclesial structures in order to settle the issue of proper development. In other words, the crucial question is this, how does one ascertain that continuity of type actually exists over time? Vincent would say that one can be certain of proper developments in aeodem sensu because of scripture the sure foundation of divine truth, as interpreted by the ecumenical councils, theological doctors, the faithful universally, and the Bishop of Rome. The Lerinian offers determinate criteria to ensure that proper growth occurs." Unquote. Corino makes a convincing case that Newman might have realized, especially in light of the promulgation of the dogma of the Immaculate Conception and the dogma of papal infallibility, that, in fact, more determined criteria than the seven tests are needed. We find an indication that this is the case when we turn to Newman's most mature reflections on these matters 
In the lengthy preface to the third edition of the two-volume republication of his Via Media of the Anglican Church, issued in 1877. In this important preface, Newman suggests that while the bishops and the pope occupy the governing or regal office, and the faithful, that is the pastors and the people, occupy the priestly office, the theologians occupy the prophetic office in the church. Newman argues that an authentic development of doctrine can occur only when there is consistent coherence among these three bodies. Furthermore, Newman stresses that theologians occupy a singular role, quote, theology is the fundamental and regulating principle of the whole church system. It is commensurate with revelation, and revelation is the initial and essential idea of Christianity." Unquote. It is for this very reason that Newman famously states, none but the scholar theologorum is competent to determine the force of papal and synodal utterances, and the exact interpretation of them is a work of time." Unquote. And the intimately connected sobering warning he utters in this preface in 1877 has only become more relevant 150 years later. Quote, religion, never, religion is never in greater danger than when, in consequence of national or international troubles, the schools of theology have been broken up and ceased to be. To permit the decline, floundering, and eventual closing of the schools of theology, or to banalize their essential theological work in the dogmatic and speculative order, is to decapitate the prophetic office of the Church. Guarino astutely observes that, quote, the decisions of councils and popes are authoritative for Newman. However, such statements also mark the beginning of sustained reflection wherein theologians determine precisely how and in which exact manner they are in continuity with a prior tradition." Unquote. Newman's profound reflections after having been a Catholic for more than 30 years are a sobering reminder that even after the theological horizon, the Christological center, and the pneumatological dynamic of the development of doctrine had been established by Henri de Lubac and Yves Congar in the decades leading up to Vatican II, there remains the indispensable task of establishing the retrospective and concurrent intelligibility of the development of doctrine, the task of determining precisely how and in which exact manner they are in continuity with the prior tradition. It is important to realize that a simple hermeneutics of doctrine and dogma that might in and of itself be, of course, very sophisticated and demanding is not sufficient to establish the intelligibility of the development of doctrine. Rather, quote, all perceptible development and growth must be able to show a logical connection with the previously given doctrine, with the result that the homogeneity of the development of dogma demands that every justified theological conclusion should be credible both objectively and subjectively. 
Nothing less than this theological work will be done when it comes to the very heart of the development of doctrine, namely the homogeneous development of dogma. Hence Newman's fourth note, logical sequence, and sixth note, conservative action on the past, turn out to be the two most important notes, specifying and thereby securing together Vincent's second rule. Yet fleshing out these notes in a way that produces and secures the intelligible continuity that Vincent's second rule requires is the labor that cannot be undertaken without coming to appreciate anew the work that the Spanish-Dominican Thomist Francisco Marin Solon undertook in an exemplary way in his homogeneous evolution of Catholic dogma. To jettison this theological labor as the bygone and allegedly failed efforts of the so-called logical theory of development is to forget that at the very heart of an argument that affords intelligibility to the continuity between developments and the prior tradition must stand the syllogism. Intelligibility is the achievement of explicit thinking. The vehicle of explicit thinking is the proposition, and the vehicle for achieving a demonstration of the intelligible continuity is the syllogism. The argument might achieve its discursive goal, a demonstration of continuity by way of cumulative probable argumentation, or by way of a strict demonstrative argumentation. But in either way, the argument achieves its goal conceptually, propositionally, and syllogistically. The universal tools of explicit reasoning. This is not a question of a scholastic framework versus historical awareness. It is rather the difference between explicit thinking that offers coherent and persuasive arguments on the one side, and on the other side, rhetorical hand-waving and simply asserting continuity retrospectively where an act of the will posits a change. To jettison the former and do the latter is to embrace presentism. Yet it is of the greatest importance to realize that presentism will always provoke the reaction of antiquarianism. And this is, at the very least, a grave burden for ecumenical relations. For presentism will rekindle Protestant as well as Eastern Orthodox concerns about a self-actuating, ultimately voluntaristic transformationism of doctrine, a concern that will only fortify the antiquarianism still at play in Protestant communions as well as Eastern Orthodox and Oriental Orthodox churches. In short, what is needed is a creative fidelity, that is a fidelity to tradition that is organic but also life-filled and robust. In the case of an authentic development, to change is to be perfect, but also and always in accord with the principles constitutive of the received tradition. This ecumenical perspective on what is at stake in the authentic development of doctrine and in the avoidance of antiquarianism as well as presentism is the opposite moment to turn to Pope St. John XXIII as the conclusion. It is important to keep in mind that the official Latin text of Pope St. John XXIII's opening speech at the Second Vatican Council, Gaudet Mater Ecclesia, includes a clear allusion to Vincent's second rule, in the form the fathers of the First Vatican Council quoted in Dei Filius, for the deposit of faith that is the truths contained in our venerable doctrine is one thing, 
Another thing is the way in which these truths are expressed, however, in the same sense and in the same meaning. It has been the argument of this lecture that the mandate entailed in Pope John's reference to Vincent and to De Filius can only be accomplished by consciously avoiding the scula of antiquarianism and the characters of presentism. The course to follow must lead from Vincent's second rule to the full application of Newman's notes and their concomitant and retrospective intelligibility by way of an explicit theological argumentation that displays the logical connection of the development with the prior tradition. It turns out that in order to avoid scula and charybdis, antiquarianism and presentism, and to complete the program that Vincent of Laran and of St. John Henry Newman had developed to distinguish authentic development of doctrine from corruptions of doctrine, requires the work that the representatives of the logical theories of development have taken up themselves, paradigmatically executed by Francisco Marin Solar in a highly nuanced and sophisticated account. It is by way of this labor, and by way of this labor alone, that the logical sequence is established, and thereby the conservative action on the past accomplished, and that thus Vincent's second rule, as fleshed out by Newman's notes and as echoed by Pope St. John XXIII in Gaudet Mater Ecclesiae, is followed. I thank you for your attention. Thank you, Professor Gooder, for this uh, very illuminating uh, presentation. And it, it occurs to me that uh, development of plants always involves continuity, as you said. And I wonder what we would say, what we would say about uh, reform. Because it, when Christ says that it's divine, he also says that to prune the vine can make it more fruitful. And so reform seems to be a continual uh, reference point within the history of the church. But that's also a way of cutting off things as inauthentic developments or problematic developments. And so can you describe a little bit what reform looks like in light of the principle of development? And what would be true reform versus false reform? Thank you for this easy question, Father. Um, I think the way I would approach that question, the answer to the question, is by distinguishing reform from reformation. Every reform is limited and occurs in light of antecedent principles. And uh, uh, as such, uh, it always has a, a limited goal um, and can be justified uh, and accounted for in light of uh, the uh, given principles that are at play and in light of the tradition. A reformation, a reformatio, is, is the attempt of a return, a fundamental return, to uh, a state of the tradition at the very beginning or an alleged purified state, or a reformatio can of course also be under the modern condition after the Enlightenment, a reformatio in light of the future, in light of a future uh, perfect state that is now to be anticipated. So uh, uh, reform remains limited 
and accountable to the tradition. It's a fundamentally uh, tra traditional concept, uh, a concept to be read in light of the tradition. Reformatio is, uh, well, transforming the tradition itself in light of a principle that transcends the tradition, a singular principle. That would be my approach to distinguish between the two. And then it depends, of course, always on the particular issue on the discussion. One wouldn't have, one couldn't describe it abstractly, I think. What is the question of reform? What is in need of reform? Thank you. Thank you, Professor. My question is your final conclusion, your, your, your um, hypothesis, maybe, that Newman ultimately looked to theology schools after the catastrophe of the French Revolution and so on um, was uh, appropriate uh, uh, and uh, the various schools in their own coherence, whether Thomist or Scotist or Augustinians or other forms as they existed at the time, that those were the proper schools because in their own dialectical and critical relationship to each other they would actually hone the arguments when Newman said he wasn't a theologian, I take that not as a critique of theology, but as an acknowledgement that he did not, on his side, receive the proper training to be a theologian in the Catholic Church in the full, so to speak, professional sense. He would always regard himself as a proto-theologian, as someone around the edges. He regarded that office very, as very highly. And when he was in Rome, he thought he encountered theologians. He would point to Peroni, to and to the others whom he encountered there as proper theologians. Um, well, I think Newman is right in his assessment, and you are right in the present description of the state um, of academic theology. The one was the major premise, the other one is the minor premise. You give me another conclusion, please. <laughs> My conclusion would be to say that Theology can act in the prophetic office is uh, overly optimistic. 
what would and they, you would need some sort of authority to discern what the theological reflections are, the legitimacy of the theological Right. This is part of the task in the present situation that needs to be sorted out by the theologians themselves. In other words, you do not have a meta-theological criteria. No one but theologians can replace theologians. If you do it by way of an extrinsic authority, you shut down theology. It needs to be clarified by the theologians themselves in a mutual, inter in an internal critique among theologians. Well, what about the, the, uh, the laity, faith of the laity? What about, uh, what about the governors uh, of the church, uh, the bishops, uh, the pope? I mean, no, this is, you're, you're raising good questions. Could there be no check, could there be no check outside of theology? Well, what would be the checks? If it were the bishops, the bishops themselves would have to become theologians. In the middle of ages there were, of course, the bishops who were theologians, Bishop of Paris and so on. The bishops of the early church were all, wait a moment, wait a minute, this one is a good dialogue. The bishops of the early church were all theologians. Let's not forget that. All theologians were bishops in the early church, with very few exceptions. A few were presbyters, a few deacons, very few. Um, in the present situation, it's tempting for some people to put in the lane instead of theologians. Uh, I think they will be detrimental because the only way they can rise to the occasion is for them to become theologians themselves. And many of them operate as hobby theologians. Uh, I am a layman. I'm constantly around lay people who are hobby theologians. I tell you, quite interesting. Uh, they're good people, they're, but you have to educate them, and they become theologians only by becoming theologians, maybe by beginning to think like theologians and take up the arguments in light of the faith and in light of the context of a holy life. This is the fundamental framework for a theologian. Otherwise, we talk about equivocations, of course, people who do theology but are not theologians. Um, the same with bishops. Bishops can be can step in, but they can only step in properly in the, the theological discourse insofar as the bishops themselves are at that moment theologians, maybe teachers. And they, of course, theologians of a higher order, but the point of that, when they lay out a critique, they have to operate in the order of intelligibility. You see, if when a heresy is identified, one needs to give an account why it is a heresy, and there is an account of intelligibility. Of course, one can shut things simply down, but that exactly is Newman's argument. That decapitates the church's prophetical office. Then we just have voluntarism going. As soon as you give an account or as a bishop why something is done, you enter unavoidably the realm of theology. That's Newman's argument. I think it's a very strong argument. You, you, you cannot reform theology besides, again, by... by by theology. Of course, theologians who should be holy and orthodox, but in the end it can only be done through the process of theology itself. That's Newman's argument, and I haven't come up with a better one. So that's... Please. Catherine of Siena, and some of her dialogues with theologians who were kind of going off the rails. Mm -hmm. Here was a woman who called them on sanctity. It's funny you say that I have a deep devotion to Catherine of Siena. And whenever I'm in Rome, I visit her, so I stand very much under her influence. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting conversation. When I try to connect your presentation with the one which was given by 
and the letters, I think it's just open slides, but at the end of the day, it looks almost easier to speak of the development of doctrine as something which is external. Ex did you say external? I didn't hear that. External, well, that can be delimited uh, somewhere. But there's one side of this phenomenon, which is the subject church, which grows in its perception of the truth, which is encapsulated in Christ, the pastoral mystery, the pentecost, and the preaching of the church. And once we uh, start thinking about the subject church, what is, it seems to me, connected with the development of doctrine is the conversion of the sinful members of the church. So we cannot eventually distinguish properly a kind of abstract problem of how can doctrine be consistent if we don't address also the more uh, subjective or existential problem, how those who are members of the church, and some are holy, some are less holy, are going to relate to this doctrine to be saved. You know? mm -hmm. So I, I just wonder if we should not balance the objective treatment of the issue with the question of holiness, sanctity, uh, the, the, the sanctification at stake in doctrine for whoever claims to relate to it. Otherwise, we are dealing with a, eventually a very um, unhistorical uh, treatment of the matter. And I wonder if Newman, when he has a debate in the 1840s with Milman on the way of understanding history, and he constantly refers to the thinking of Lucas, the connection between the earthly dimension of history and its heavenly dimension, and what is at stake is the earthly dimension of history, is the conversion of sin. This is just an ongoing comment in my mind. No, it's a very good comment. It puts the whole matter into a wider framework. Um, I don't want my last remarks to be isolated from from the uh, from from the, the, the body of the text, uh, from the from the from the whole concern of uh, of discerning authentic development of doctrine. Uh, but I think it is. It is coming down to that, uh, that, that uh, the intelligibility, and part of the intelligibility is always pointing out, of course, the saving intention of doctrine and dogma all the time. But in the development of, of dogma, the intelligibility is, a, is an indispensable component to account for development. And I think this is where part of our present situation is we are very weak on that side and have undervalued that. Um, and the dangers that immediately arise when, in that context is either antiquarianism, that means holding on to a state of the tradition because what is claimed as a development doesn't become intelligible as an authentic development, or to simply pull out the baby with the bathwater and say we are in a completely different dynamic, we are in a new dynamic, a radically transformed dynamic, 
in which we don't need to worry about development at all anymore. This is a passé question of the past. Uh, we can go from rupture onto rupture. Uh, and transformations are fine because uh, uh, it is the future that we have a vision of in the spirit, let's say the spirit of the council, for example, that carries us forward. And the whole question of development is uh, itself passé. We might use the word still, but the meaning has changed. And that needs to be the only way to clarify that, that that's not the case and why that is problematic, requires the task of theology and that means theological argumentation, it means achieving an account of intelligibility of the development. So I think that's the only defense that we have long term. Also in ecumenical relationships, they're very important here. The Eastern Orthodox are not going to buy any, anything that looks like or smells like presentism. That will be for them just an argument for affirming all their concerns. Also on the, on the, on the Protestant side. Um, I think the only way ecumenically to account from the Catholic side in these relationships for an authentic Catholic understanding of what happened needs to be, uh, operate by way of intelligibility, providing intelligibility, hermeneutically, form of arguments, depends on the individual cases of what dogma, doctrinal development we speak about, there's a whole variety open there, I think that's important. But I think you is absolutely right, there is no other way. I'm, I'm, before I close, I'm going to move myself to make an intervention and commentary. I, Father, I find myself completely in favor as a theologian, in favor of the spirit of your comments concerning the actual state of the discipline, the, when I say academic and institutional situation of uh, heterogeneity, and you called it vagary, which is a good word, of uh, the academic profession of theologians. But for the comments that Professor Arthur is making, I think one can distinguish helpfully four groups. The ordinary laity with the census fide, the Episcopal authority, who are not first and foremost taxed to make sophisticated theological and historical judgments, but as for punctuated judgments of faith and governance. Uh, the saints, who are moved by especially intense charity, but of course, also charity implies intelligence and wisdom, and so at least in, implicitly cast a theological light. And theologians who give intrinsic intelligibility to what is going on in the life of the church. And of course, these people can overlap with each other to some extent. It seems to me, if we try to, in the wake of the crisis of theologians, put everything on the poor, uh, ordinary people of God, I'm talking about lay people, uh, or religious who don't have information, uh, the dangers of an ecclesiological populism are that we will in fact be entrusting the future of the church merely in its theological registers to a dynamic of uh, herd instinct or popular piety, and that is an insufficient intellectual criteria. If we ask the bishops to take on the full weight of the theological dogmatic projects, they have the assistance of the Holy Spirit to make judgments, but not, when it says, to acquire scientia per se, that they should have doctrine theology and so forth to help them, but that's an acquired knowledge and cooperation. And they may not have it, or they may not be, be gifted at it. And so what we end up with is voluntarism or authoritarianism, which they do have authority, but it should not be overtaxed. They're concerned organically in collaboration with the what 
gifts of theological research are to be favored in accordance with the census fide of the whole people of God. If we put everything on the saints, then we risk to fall into either motivism or moralism because we're going to make charity the principle of truth. And it, charity enlightens, but it isn't a sufficient criteria for the satisfaction of intellect. So the problem is when the theology is anemic, and it is, if we don't shore it up with its own integrity, there's nothing else to replace it. But even when it does exist in you know, subcultures where it's preserved, it has to function organically with all those other groups. So I think we face a crisis of the institutional failure in theology, but I don't think we can circumvent it, even if it's a second-order reflection on something more primary, which is the life of salvation in the church that Father Emmanuel was talking about. So, you know, I, I think we, we shouldn't underestimate the, um, the, the challenge, but also the promise of the theological work of the guild. Please help me thank uh, Professor Ryan Parker and all of our students.